Our scripture reading this afternoon comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 8, in the first place. Ecclesiastes 8, verses 14 through chapter 9, verse 12. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 14. There the preacher says, There is a vanity that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil throughout, through, through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on the earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who, shun, he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. But for the, but the, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten." Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. So far, the reading from... uh, No, sorry, two more verses. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of men are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So far from Ecclesiastes, and then we'll also turn to the New Testament to Luke chapter 13. Luke 13, we'll read verses 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who told him, that is Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, 
Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put, and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So far, the reading of God's word. The text that we'll be focusing on is Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 14 to 9, verse 12, the text that we just read. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, this is certainly not an easy chapter. It's uh, what you might identify as the lowest point in the book of Ecclesiastes. At a first reading, it seems to be marked by despair and hopelessness. And it seems, uh, it seems at a first reading even to be saying, because life is meaningless and hopeless, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It certainly seems to read that way. Uh, and it, again, at a first reading, it appears to be saying it doesn't really matter how we live. Whether we're righteous or wicked, it says we all go to the same place. The same fate awaits us all. Now there is more to this chapter than what we might see on a first reading. But there is a challenge with this chapter, and it is this. It's trying to hold two things together that we will find very hard to hold together. Uh, On the one hand, there is a very real confidence in the fact that God is keeping the accounts. You'll see that, for example, in chapter 9, verse 1, and it follows from chapter 8, verse 13, right immediately before our text. Both verses stating confidence that God is keeping the accounts. It will be well with those who fear Him. There's that on the one hand. But on the other hand, there's a very honest recognition that what we see in this world, what we actually witness with our eyes in this life, does not support that conviction. That from all that we can see with our eyes, it looks like the universe doesn't care what happens to the righteous or the wicked. Uh, And oftentimes, the righteous get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked get what the righteous deserve. That's the hard truth the preacher is wrestling with in this chapter. How does faith in God, conviction that God is keeping the accounts, how does it deal with the reality that you don't see that in in this life? So he begins in verse 14. There's a vanity, uh, again, that is mist or fog. Uh, There's an enigma that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this also is vanity. This is something the preacher then wants to call our attention to and encourage us to be honest with ourselves as we think about it. This is a real problem. Now we know, we all know, of course, that life isn't fair. You've been told that by your parents from an early age. We all have And we've all, to some measure, experienced the truth of that. But let's not, therefore, dismiss the problem that the the preacher is seeing here. 
And sometimes we try to comfort ourselves with the saying, well, that's life, you know, life's not fair. But that only addresses the issue. It doesn't actually answer the issue. Uh, and, and maybe we, we think we, if we tell it to ourselves often enough, life's not fair, we can just numb ourselves to this problem. But this isn't a problem to be numb to. And the preacher's encouraging us not to numb ourselves to it. Life isn't fair. And every now and then, the hard truth of that reality really comes crashing on into our lives in ways that we can't just brush off or ignore. A drunk driver leaves a mother uh, of several, uh, leaves several young children without their mother. That's what we mean when we say life's not fair. It's not right. A little girl gets cancer. Uh, meanwhile, the wicked get away with the greatest wickedness. Children, even right now, are violently abused, and mo- many, if not most, of their perpetrators will not get caught in this world. That's what we mean when life is not fair. And we can try our best to not be bothered by that fact, but the reality is it does and it should bother us. In fact, Scripture actually speaks a lot about this problem. A great number of the Psalms are cries to God to address this problem, that the wicked are getting away with cruelty and wickedness. The saints of the Old Testament, they didn't just brush it off, say, hey, that's life, life's not fair. No, they learned to take it to God. So we shouldn't be too quick then to dismiss the issue. In fact, it is this very truth that has made many men and women atheists, isn't it? When they've seen injustice, they've seen evil, and it's so jarred them that they've abandoned any hope in God. I got to know a fellow student during my university years who was a, a fiercely committed atheist. Uh, she, hated, uh, she hated the evidence of, of, of my own Christianity. Uh, and she once explained it to me how she was viciously beaten throughout her childhood by a father who would read Bible verses to her while, while doing that to her. And then at one point she said, I, I went out into the backyard, I stared up at the sky, and I realized the universe just doesn't care. The empty sky does not care what happens. Well, who could blame her for coming to that conclusion? Life in this world, if we're being honest, it doesn't really support the idea that that the righteous will get what they deserve or the wicked will get what they deserve. Now, the preacher has already said before, he said it in verse 13, he says it again in verse uh, 1 of chapter 9, he knows, he knows that it will still be well with the righteous. It will be well with those who fear God. He knows that, But it's a position you have to hold by faith. It's not a position you get to hold because you see the evidence for it in this world. And so this too, he says, this is missed. It's an enigma. It's it's vanity. It's something that doesn't make sense in this world. And he says it's a grievous evil. Now again, uh, he's not letting go of that conviction. So we'll see that now in verse 9. He says, all this I laid to heart or excuse me, uh, verse 1 of chapter 9, all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. They are in the hand of God. But, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. There's two things he's saying here then. Number one, he says, I know that the righteous and the wise are in the hands of God and and their works. God is keeping the accounts. God knows who are His. He sees them, He knows them, He will reward them. But number two, man, from all that man can see in this, in this world, man cannot know whether even love or hate awaits him. As far as you can see, based on what your eyes see in this world, there's nothing on earth that indicates that you're going to heaven or going to hell or not going anywhere at all. 
I think this is an important challenge for our own time as well. In our culture, there are many people who've rejected the idea of a God, uh, or at least they, they hold that idea at arm's length, not really interested even to find out whether there is a God or not, and yet, for some reason, still cling firmly to the belief uh, that, that good people will still be rewarded, that, that there will still be an afterlife, uh, and we go to a better place, whatever sort of existence that might be. And, of course, we're all confident that we, we are one of those good people who are going to go to a better place. But the preacher challenges that idea head on. How do you know? How can anyone know that you're headed to a better place? Apart from faith in God... What reason does anyone have uh, to say whether love or hatred awaits them in the life to come? As far as man can tell, the same fate awaits us all. In fact, as he pointed out back in chapter 3, as far as we can tell, we await the same fate as the animals. It's, it's the same for them as it is for us. He says for the same also for the good and the evil, the clean, the unclean, the one who takes an oath or the one who shuns the taking of oaths. The same fate happens to them all. We die and we are buried in the ground. The point is, God has not given us access to see with our eyes any justice on this earth. And what that means then, is that if we're going to have a conviction that God does reward the righteous, and God does punish the wicked, it's going to have to be grounded in faith in God, in His Word and His character. If we're going to believe, as the preacher himself does, that it will be well with the one who fears God, and it's not going to be well with the wicked, that conviction is going to have to be grounded in a deep confidence in the character of God. It's not going to come from experiencing life in this earth. Apart from the fear of God, man can know nothing. And then in the verses to come, uh, after after verse 1, the preacher explores what are the consequences of, of that truth. What's the effect of this? Well, the consequence of this is that people are going to believe what they want to believe. Because there's no reports coming back from the dead. There's, there's no evidence who's in heaven and who's in hell. And so people will believe what they want to believe. Uh, and, and because there's no way of knowing, we all come up with ways to tell ourselves, well, I'm one of the good people. I'm going to a better place. Uh, and if I believe in a hell, it, it's certainly not for people like me. And what's the result of that? Well, human beings give themselves over to their sin. That's what the uh, preacher says. Because the same event happens to all as far as we know, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And then they go and join the dead. Isn't that exactly what, what human history witnesses to? The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and then they go and join the dead. Uh, People spend their lives telling themselves things they want to hear about what's going to happen after this life. And then they spend their lives rebelling against God, giving themselves over to evil. And no one ever comes and reports back from the grave to warn us uh, about where we might be headed. Uh, Notice he says that it's madness. Sin is madness. Madness is in their hearts uh, all all the days they live. That's what sin is. Sin is, is madness. It's violating uh, the law of God. It's violating other people made in God's image. Living in envy or hatred or idolatry. It is madness. And for many, particularly now in our culture, for many, this life really is all there is. Since we all, all, all we know is the same event happens to all, many have concluded this is all there is. This is the only life there is. And so the preacher says, from that perspective, 
a live dog is better than a dead lion. A dog in ancient history was uh, regarded as as scum. Uh, And so when you called someone a dog, it's still this way in the Middle East. It's a way of saying they're scum. Uh, whereas a lion is a symbol of strength and, and courage and bravery. And he says, why, why be the lion? Why be the lion? Lions are dead. Be the dog. Live dog is still better than a dead lion. And is that not the way that so many live? Now again, the preacher is just observing this from the perspective of this earth. But that is the way that many people in the world think. You only live once. Make the most of it. This is all you get. Once you're dead, it's over. Your love, your hate, uh, all your envy, all vanish into thin air. So there, from the vantage point of human observation, uh, we can't know, we cannot see what will come after this life. He says again, the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hands of God, but you're not going to observe that when you look out into this world. also means that when someone is blessed in this world, does not mean that that's God's favor on them. When someone suffers in this world, that does not mean that's God's judgment against them. It's the same point the Lord Jesus made in, in Luke 13. Uh, a few years earlier, Pilate had massacred a whole group of Galileans uh, and, and, and then took their blood and mixed it with the sacrifices they were offering. And the popular cultural belief uh, in, in the uh, time after that was this must have been some punishment from God that they died such a horrible uh, death. Uh, Likewise, a tower had collapsed in in Siloam, killing 18 people. And again, the popular belief is this must be God's punishment uh, against them. Isn't that that the way we think? We we rush to those sorts of conclusions. We see evil happening, and and, and somewhere deep down we want to believe they must deserve it. It must have happened to them because they deserve it. The Lord Jesus rejects that kind of approach. Life is more complicated than that. Uh, You don't know the purposes of God. Uh, Yes, you know God is sovereign. Yes, you know God has a purpose. But it doesn't mean you know what that purpose is. It doesn't mean you can explain why God does what he does. And so the Lord Jesus, when he uh, reflects on this, he says to, to the Jews, if anything, you should take these events as a sign that you also ought to repent. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's the same mistake, right, that Job's friends uh, made in the book of Job. Uh, they saw the calamity that fell on him, the loss of his wealth, his children, uh, and, and uh, even his health, uh, and almost his life. Uh, and they concluded there must be, there must be some, some hidden sin in this man's life. But there wasn't. And the reality is that life is not so simple. However much man may toil in seeking, says the preacher, he, he does not find out what God is doing. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So the preacher is urging us to hold these two things together. He's not letting go of his conviction that God is still reigning. God will reward the righteous, but you're not going to see that in, in this world. And if, if your confidence in, in God's justice is rooted in what you see in this earth, that confidence is going to be shaken at some point in your life and may be lost altogether. And not only that, then he says, death, death comes unexpectedly. This too, you you can't see what God is doing. You can't know 
why God takes the life of some and not others. He says, verse 11, Again, I saw under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Again, he's, he's, he's speaking here under the perspective, from the perspective of under the sun. Based on what you can see, all you can say is time and chance happen to them all. You don't know the purposes of God. You can't explain what God is doing. God's ways are mysterious. As far as anyone can tell, here on earth, it's time and chance. And that means the conclusion of that is don't base your morality, your beliefs about what right and wrong and, and the justice of God on what you see on, on this earth. It's a foolish uh, outlook. Well, given such a, such a, what shall we say, a bleak perspective, it might surprise us then that concluding in, in such a low point, the preacher then turns and, and, and commends to us a life of joy. Verses 7 to 9, he says, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let oil not be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain, again, that's misty, foggy, enigmatic life that He has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. It's a surprising conclusion, isn't it? Instead of uh, promoting despair on, on the one hand or, or, on the other hand, ardent and fervent, fervent religious devotion on the other, you know, just to make sure that you're in God's good books, instead the preacher commends to us a life of joy. Now, an important clarification needs to be made here. It is not hedonism. He's not commending hedonism. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Uh, it, it is a life of holy, grateful, God-fearing joy. Why? Because he says, God has already approved what you do. Well, we, need, we need to make sure we understand that. Uh, we should remember in the first place, this passage is written to believers. It is written to believers, not to humanity in general. It's written to the righteous. Don't forget, that's where he started in verse 1 of chapter 9. Uh, the righteous and the wise in their works are in the hand of God. He's writing to those then who fear God and are wrestling with this problem of injustice in the world. Uh, so when he says, God has already approved your works, he is not saying, uh, he is not speaking to warlords or adulterers or cheaters that God has approved their works. He's speaking to the righteous, to those who fear God. Uh, and don't, when we speak of the righteous here, don't misunderstand that either. Uh, the, the preacher speaks of the righteous and the wise in their works. And he doesn't mean, of course, that there are truly righteous people in and of themselves. He's already, uh, in, in chapter 7, disposed of that idea. Surely, he says, there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and, and never sins. Uh, so he doesn't mean those who, who never sin. But the righteous here, as in uh, almost everywhere else in Scripture, the righteous refers to those who fear God, to those who are righteous by faith in God, righteous because they trust in the righteousness that's given by God. 
They're those who have confessed their sins and received God's forgiveness and are walking, therefore, before God with a clear conscience. That's what he means by, by the righteous. You see it often in the Psalms as well, uh, where uh, sometimes even the Psalms have this, this interesting combination of, of, Lord, defend me in my righteousness, and at the same time, Lord, you know my sins. Oh, is is the, the psalmist being a hypocrite there? No, he's saying, I'm righteous because I've confessed my sins to God and received God's forgiveness. That's where uh, I am righteous. So here too, when the preacher speaks to the righteous, uh, he's now speaking to the righteous and he's commending to them a life of joy because he says, God has already approved your works. This is basic gospel, isn't it? Uh, It's a life of faith, righteousness that comes by faith and the joy that flows from that righteousness. Although the saints in the Old Testament had uh, less understanding of that uh, than we do, they certainly did understand uh, that, that our righteousness is by faith. It's what they saw every time they came to the temple. They walked through the, the gates of the temple and they see the giant bronze altar standing in front of them declaring, your sins are there on that altar so that you can be righteous before God by faith. Uh, and so, in a world that is missed, in a world that's full of brokenness, In a world where you see injustice happening and you don't see a resolution for that injustice, uh, the preacher commands not despair, not religiosity or works righteousness, but resting in the righteousness that's already yours by faith and a life of joy flowing from that. Rest in God's favor because it's not something you have to earn. It's not something you can earn, uh, nor something you will uh, receive uh, by, by, by trying to be the righteous person, the most righteous person in this world. It's something you enjoy by faith in relationship with God. And resting in God then, the, the righteousness that comes by faith, resting in God can, can then lead you to receive this life with all of its brokenness, with all of its enigma, uh, with all of its, uh, its perplexing realities, like, like the, the wicked not receiving what they deserve, we can nonetheless receive this life as a gift from God to be enjoyed with holy gratitude. That's what the preacher is commending. Let your, uh, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with, with a merry heart. Let your garments always be white. Let oil not be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your, your misty, foggy, quickly passing, transient life. And perhaps the country song uh, says it best this time. Uh, what are the three principles that are set forth in this chapter? God is great, beer is good, and people are crazy. That's what the country song says, and that's what the preacher says. It's about see that God is great. See that life is good, even in a broken world. Drink your wine with a merry heart. And recognize, he says, verse 3, people are crazy. Madness lives in their hearts all of their days. We're going to change the world then by becoming bitter and angry Christians. Uh, In fact, uh, only, only Christian joy, only resting in God has hope to change this world. Uh, Only such joy has the power to speak into the madness and to bring about change. Anger, bitterness, cynicism, murmuring, these are not the fruits of the Spirit. They're the fruits of the flesh. And they hardly stand out from the noise that's already there in this world. Isn't that what we see right now with all of the the, the fury, the turmoil uh, relating to, to, to the lockdowns, to masks, to restrictions? 
We can't add to the noise by adding to the murmuring, the hatred, the anger. We add, we change the world by joy. We change the world by resting in, in the confidence that God is good. He will bring good out of what is truly, truly broken. Uh, joy, real joy, rooted and grounded in God's goodness, that stands out in this world. Now, this might sound like a, a theology that only works in prosperity, but that's not at all the case. The preacher has been very real, realistic so far about the hardships that exist in this, in this world. I've seen, and I'm sure you have too, Christians who embody that joy even in very difficult, very uncertain situations. Now, that kind of joy can be found in even the hardest places. Many journals from prisoner of war camps uh, have recorded the examples of Christians even there embodying this Christian joy that comes from confidence that whatever God is doing, which I certainly can't see, I know that God is doing something good. Uh, the life of faith, then, is a life fundamentally of gratitude and joy. Now, that flies, it flies in the face of so much man-made religion that says, if you're really religious, you ought to be angry. You ought to be bitter. You ought to be self-righteous. Uh, it flies in the face of, of, of traditions that prohibit and ban and regulate uh, the very things that God has given us to enjoy. We want to be most diligent in not falling for, for that trap, that uh, enticement, uh, man-made religion that, that says you shall not find joy in the good gifts of God. Uh, Paul says the same thing to Timothy uh, in 1 Timothy 4. Uh, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage, who require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God and by prayer. That's exactly what the preacher is saying too. Take this life for all of the brokenness that exists in this world. Rejoice in God's good gifts and let no one take those gifts from you. Uh, one of Satan's most effective attacks on our consciences is to take God's gifts and to turn them into reasons to feel guilty. A preacher wrote about this before uh, in, in chapter 7, verse 16, where he says, don't, don't be overly righteous or make yourself too wise. What he's talking about there is not true religion. It's, it's man-made religion, uh, man-made rules. And our best response to, to those attacks from Satan is to treat them with utter contempt, to say, no, this is a gift from God, and I will not, uh, I, I will not feel guilty for what God has given that is good. To the pure, says Paul elsewhere, all things are pure. To the impure, all things are impure. To those who have a clean conscience before God, all things are pure. And all things may be received by God, uh, received uh, from God as gifts. Uh, if you have a guilty conscience, brothers and sisters, deal with that before God. Deal with that before the cross. Don't try to deal with that uh, anywhere else. Uh, if you have sins, likewise, that need repenting of, do that at the cross. Get clean before God, but then uh, be clean. Enjoy being clean. God has approved what you do. So enjoy life as a gift from God. So then, how shall we conclude? Number one, let's make it our priority in everything to be right before God. The righteous and the wise and their works are in the hands of God. He knows those who are His. 
Uh, He knows who they are. And that means even in this broken world, they get to rest in the comfort that God has approved uh, of their works in Christ. Uh, Number two, this is where the preacher then goes, that also means embrace the work. Embrace the work that God gives you to do in this broken world. No, you can't fix everything, but you can do the work that God has set right before you. Uh, And we do this as well with joy. So he says in verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And don't stop there. I won't, I won't read only half the verse. Let's read the whole verse. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Did you feel that maybe deflated you as you, you read the first half and, and it's an inspiring verse and you get to the second half and, okay, that's a, that's a tough verse. Uh, the first half gets quoted a lot. You see it in, in uh, paintings on, on, on people's walls. The second half, perhaps, not so much. But understand what the preacher is, is setting before us. God has put you on the earth today. Not tomorrow, at least as far as you know. And God is in control today. And you don't know what tomorrow will bring. But you do know, you do know, that the time you've given here is your time from God to be used in God's service. Don't wait till the time is right, because it might never be right. Do the work that God has put before you today. Do it with joy. Do it with a clean conscience. And rest in the knowledge that God will make sense of it. God will use it in his way, in his time. So two parents, raise your children today. Don't wait till tomorrow. Today is the day uh, to, to love to cherish, to disciple the children that God has given you. That's true. Uh, where, where he goes with this, he says, there's no work or wisdom or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. It is true, and we should acknowledge it, uh, that our perspective on the afterlife has, has changed. Um, it is richer now and fuller than it was in Solomon's day. The saints in the Old Testament, they did believe in the final resurrection. Uh, they were confident that God would raise them to glory eventually. But they didn't know when that would happen or what that would look like. Their expectation, as far as we can tell for the immediate future, uh, is shrouded in uncertainty as we see in this verse as well. There's no wisdom, no thought, no knowledge, no planning in Sheol to where you're going. It's like we, uh, you, you might read about in, in, in Psalm 88. Do you, do you work wonders, says the psalmist to God? Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? And certainly they had a smaller view, or, or we should say a shrouded view of, of life after death. Psalm 6, verse 5, In death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Or Psalm 30, verse 9, What profit, O Lord, is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? So their, their, their perspective was shrouded in uncertainty. We do have more hope now than they did then. Death and Hades are closed to us. Our, our immediate expectation is not to dwell in Sheol. It's to go to be with Christ. What Paul says, to be with Christ is gain. But even so, we shouldn't be too quick to dismiss the point that the preacher is making here. Even in the New Testament, you find almost the very same words of wisdom. It says James in James 4, verse 14, Your life is a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Isn't that what the preacher is also saying? Uh, 
yes, we have hope after this life, but we also have today, which God has given us in this life, to serve Him, to live for Him today. You don't know what tomorrow might bring. So, brothers and sisters, embrace the time that God has given you here on earth. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Trust in God to give meaning uh, and results and fruit to your work and to let him, de- and let him decide what your work will amount to. If he's called you to cut the grass, never say that's too demeaning a job for me to do. Cut the grass with joy. If he's called you to build barns, then build barns with joy, even if you think they might be torn down 50 or 70 years from now. It's above our pay grade to determine what God will do with the work that we do, what value God will bring from it. Some of the most influential Christians in history, in fact, worked uh, most of their lives in very menial uh, and, and seemingly insignificant jobs. So what's it come down to then? Live by faith. Trust in God uh, to make sense of all that is beyond our grasp. If you look out into a broken world, you see injustice not being repaid. Uh, you, you see the, the, the righteous suffering. Trust in God. If you see uh, a world that's full of mist, a world that's full of uncertainty, trust in God. Accept that, yes, things won't make sense to our eyes in this life. And then lean with your whole being on the sovereign care of God who's bought you, who's paid for you, with the blood of Christ. That means you can rejoice even in a broken world because God is good and he knows who are his and he receives them because Christ bought them. Amen.